You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to Women of Tomorrow. I'm Laura Bell Bundy. And I'm Shay Carter. And we are Partners, Partners in, in Feminist, Feminist Crime. <laughs> Our podcast is a companion piece to our album, Women of Tomorrow, where each song explores an issue women are facing today. But there's only so much you can talk about in a three minute and 30 second song. So our podcast is our opportunity to deep dive into that issue's history, talk to an expert or two, and figure out solutions for moving forward. As Maya Angelou says, when you know better, you do better. This episode is called Girls Just Want to Have Fun, A Closer Look at Domestic Violence Against Women. This is a special episode of our podcast that will use recordings from the Women of Tomorrow benefit for the Domestic Violence Response Fund that we hosted on YouTube last month. The speakers on our panel included Layla Milani from Futures Without Violence, Holly Height from the Downtown Women's Center in L.A., and Sandra Park from the ACLU. We'll be diving into this topic with expert in family violence and victimology, Dr. Emily Bonestell-Postal, and listeners will hear clips from the event that include a survivor's perspective, as well as statistics and information from the panel of experts. We've developed this episode with a trauma-informed and victim-centered perspective, but if at any point you feel that you need support, there is help 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Just call 1-800-799-SAFE for the Domestic Violence Hotline. You are not alone. The only cover on our album is a slow, haunting, fully orchestrated version of the up-tempo pop classic, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Uh, As I looked at the lyrics, uh, I noticed this particular lyric, which was, some boys take a beautiful girl and hide her away for the rest of the world. I want to be the one who walks in the sun Oh, girls just want to have fun. I was like, I actually was uh, moved emotionally by it. And... um, I think many women, uh, many women understand the experience of um, being controlled or manipulated by man and some women uh, physically abused. Uh, it's sort of in the cultural consciousness. One in four women experience domestic violence at some point in their life. This is a huge issue. And as we are doing this album and we're addressing different issues that we're facing, this is an issue that we need to discuss. And here is our rendition of Girls Just Want to Have Fun. I come home in the morning light, my mind. 
Enjoyed our rendition of Girls Just Want to Have Fun. So, to discuss this issue with us today is Dr. Emily Bonestal Postal. She is an activist and an educator. Emily has her doctorate in sociology, having taught victimology, family violence, inequalities in society, and gender studies at the University of Kentucky. 
She is currently serving as Outreach Director for Marcy's Law for Kentucky, and Emily is our expert for this episode. She's going to help us break down some large concepts into bite-sized pieces so we can better understand these complex issues. And with that, welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me, guys. So while the song itself doesn't reference domestic violence, the music video we did depicts a woman's journey in an abusive relationship through performance and animation. We wanted to tackle the subject of domestic violence, but we wanted to be very responsible about how we did that. So I brought on Ariel Zucker, who is a domestic violence survivor and founder of CNT Productions and all female production company to conceive and direct this music video. We are now going to play for you our interview with Ariel from our event, and we're going to have our expert guest, Dr. Emily Bonestell-Postal, interject. Part of Dr. Emily's teaching curriculum involves her asking her students, okay, now that you've listened to this, what did you hear? I'm going to ask Emily to help walk us through this interview with Ariel and make sure we really heard all that Ariel was expressing. Now... Let's hear from Arielle. I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to shape uh, a narrative around this because I think that uh, so often you see harmful imagery uh, of survivors of domestic violence, um, so much so that you don't even see them as survivors, you see them as victims. Um, and I think there was a very, like, there was a turning point for me. Um, that I know a lot of survivors have where you, you go from feeling like a victim to feeling like a survivor. Um, and some of us are constantly at war with that internally. And uh, even when you just type in domestic violence on YouTube, you see the same thing over and over again. You see a woman with a uh, busted lip and a black eye looking hopelessly into the camera and it's not only triggering, but extremely disheartening because you start to think that this is the only future for me. So much of my work is around social impact and entertainment. Uh, I take this representation very personally and very seriously. And I'm very resistant to portray this uh, on screen in any other context than a, a survivor story. Um, and that's what I was so into about when you approached me about this, because um, the lyrics did lend themselves to a journey, not just um, somebody being a victim and uh, left, you know, in the cold and empty dark room to fend for themselves, but is, you know, able to walk in the sun and is able to have, um, a, you know, a real moment of um survival. And I, and I, I really loved that. And I loved that you were willing to hear me so much on how I would like to see that represented on screen that I felt like I could um, really run with this vision in order to, you know, bring something valuable on screen that people who perhaps are you know, still on their journey of identifying themselves between a survivor and a victim, that they could see something like this and perhaps uh, think that that could be my journey too, that it, it doesn't have to be an endless cycle, that maybe I could find a way out. Mm -hmm. Something I really liked about your choices in the music video were a lot of the bruises that show up on Laura aren't on the face. They're in places where you wouldn't be able to see them. And I think 
Yeah. We have a history of really silencing women and women feeling like they can't talk about their abuse if it, they aren't wearing it on their face or it's not abuse if it's verbal. It's not abuse. Yeah. It has to be these kind of over-exaggerated things to be abused. Emily, what jumps out the most to you about these first comments from Ariel? Well, so immediately the first thing that I noticed is how victim-centered and trauma-informed the development of the music video was. So what I mean by that, um, Laura is an artist, right? And she could have just directed the video with the vision that she had for it. But she intentionally brought in someone with experience and insight to help take the lead. So in doing this, she's elevated the voice and the experience of Ariel. And together they created this incredible video that captures the nuances of domestic violence in this really, really beautiful way. Um, and so I'm really excited. I hope that our conversation today can show your listeners that all of us, no matter what kind of job we have or the work that we do or whatever field or career that you're in, um, that we can be both victim-centered and trauma-informed and that in doing so, we can, we can really actually make a big difference. Um, so the second thing that we heard her talking about is this importance of representation. And that's a buzzword that you hear a lot. So uh, let me take just a second to kind of break down what that means. She shares that when you're living in that reality and you do a Google search, right, that you see similar types of images of what domestic violence looks like, what we think domestic violence looks like, and it sends really important messages. So maybe you see images that don't look like what you're living through, and so you minimize your own experience saying, well, I must not be going through a domestic violence situation. Or it creates this sort of false sense of normalcy in your abusive situation because it makes you think of abuse sort of on a continuum with physical abuse at, at the worst end. Um, and so what happens is that you sort of negotiate with yourself that that's the threshold for what really is bad. Um, and you kind of promise yourself that you'll leave when it gets to that point, but it may never get to that point because not all abuse is physical. Um, and so Abuse and violence takes lots of different forms and all of it is harmful, whether or not there's physical abuse present. And so by, by being really intentional about how domestic violence was represented, the video is one that I think helps to challenge our societal thoughts and expectations of what domestic violence looks like. Um, and I think it, it's gonna make it so that lots of people will be able to see themselves in their own journey reflected in the video as well. This idea of continuum makes so much sense and how you minimize or explain away your experiences because of it. Um, Arielle talked about this in more depth. And let's take a listen to what she said when when talking about her intentions behind where we put the placement and location of the bruises. That to me was a really important um, thing to bring up because for me, that's the reason I have such an issue with the black eye and the busted lip because most of the time when somebody is experiencing domestic violence, it's with somebody they know and they love and somebody that they're living with. And that means that um, they're not going to make their abuse really obvious, um, at least not at first. For me, um, I was I grew up in a domestically uh, violent home. That's why I know so much about this. My father was physically and emotionally abusive, and for me, that meant that um, you know there were no bruises on my face. You wouldn't you wouldn't know by just looking at me and seeing me at school, but um, you would know that I, I never wore short sleeves and that I would have you know bruises all up in my arm. And, you know, and, and essentially it would be in my behavior, but 
that's the thing too, is that because it was, um, because it was being done by somebody who I loved, that meant that, um, it somehow was kind of my fault and my responsibility to hide. So I think that's the thing that, um, a lot of people don't understand about domestic violence. Like, well, why don't you just leave? And it's like, well, you love this person and you think it's kind of your fault. Like you think it's kind of your responsibility to shield, um, them from the repercussions of what could happen. And, um, like you'd be doing something wrong if you shared that vulnerability. So, you know, for that line, for that specifically, I just, I didn't want to see any bruises. I wanted to see her go from like, um, you know, not, no bruises on her face. I wanted to see her going from like being at work, um, acting completely normal and then lying back and the shirt is removed and you see all of the bruises covering her body and you see everything that she's kind of hiding from everybody else because, to me, in some ways, that's even more traumatic, like the stuff that you couldn't talk about and the stuff that like you still like gaslight yourself about, like, did, is this really that bad? Did this really even happen? Like, um, you know, all of, all of that, that comes with, um, hiding this aspect of your life for so long, uh, that it felt really important to me to truthfully represent that. I think I just want people to know that if you think you don't know somebody who's surviving domestic violence, you're wrong. Um, that you very likely do know somebody uh, who's been through this experience or who's going through it right now. Look out for the signs. Uh, be conscientious that you have no idea what's going on in somebody else's life. And you could very well be missing something uh, that if you just invite them to open up a little bit, you really could save a life. So someone did that for me. And I hope that, you know, you can do that for someone too. There's so much powerful stuff in here. Can you help us walk through the things she said that you want to make sure we really heard? Sure. Absolutely. There is a lot of powerful stuff that, um, that we can unpack here. I think if we think about it kind of in, in four four or five different key components I think is really important. So the first is um, breaking down the cultural consciousness of domestic violence. So what does that look like? What are the messages that we have? How does that affect the way that we think of and see um, and interact with survivors of, of domestic violence? The second um, is this idea of what's called the cycle of abuse and the fact that domestic and family violence happens typically by someone you love. Uh, which is really part of what makes domestic violence different and kind of unique than other types of trauma. And it's also part of the unique challenges to getting out of that cycle, um, which leads into a conversation that that Ariel brought up of the question, why doesn't she just leave? So I'd love to break that down if we have some time. Um, and then finally, sort of the, the last part of what she has to say here is that she really gives us all a call to action. Um, she says, you know, Somebody helped her and, and there are ways that we can help other people. And so um, I think it would be really helpful to, you know, kind of think about how is it that you help somebody who's in this experience? What are the best ways that we can support victims? Um, how can we support the incredible organizations who are working every day to do this work? So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot here. I'm happy to jump in whenever it makes sense. So the issues that we're facing today are really part of a cultural consciousness, and we can't fully understand where we are until we know where we've been. So I think it's time for a history lesson. Laura Bell, take it away. 
in a world, a man's world. 40,000 years ago, our first female was a natural forager, able to manage the task of gathering nuts and berries while breastfeeding her young. Hunting large prey would have been quite difficult with an infant, so the men did it. Both hunting and gathering would have been equally important to their survival, making both sexes equal in value. An egalitarian society. Then one day, a quick-witted Neolithic female noticed that plants grew from little seeds, and in around 10,000 BC, crops started to be cultivated, most likely by chicks. It was now necessary to protect the crops, so communities began to stay in one place. These bitches produced so much food that the need to hunt for large prey was not really necessary anymore. So the dudes had nothing to do. One guy was like, I'm super bored, bro. Instead of shooting arrows through those cows, let's breed them and use them to plow these crops. And his friend was like, Hey, this cow's milk is like better than breast milk. So these super bored men took over agriculture and the herding of animals, and the women developed the art of spinning and weaving wool into cloth. Cue horror film music. For the first time ever, women's duties kept her inside the home, and men remained outside. No, girl, do not go in the house! The livestock and the land became his. These men began to accumulate property. If a man wanted to pass his possessions on to his kids, he would have to make sure they were his kids. That's when strict laws against female adultery and the seclusion of females began as an attempt to ensure the lines of legitimate offspring and establish lines of inheritance. Yeah, and how do you do this? You guarantee she's a virgin before she has kids with you. And how do you do that? Deny her education and promote her chastity by making her wear a veil in 90 degree heat. Or you know, make laws that make it okay to beat her into submission. Thus, the patriarchy was born. The domination of women and children by men. This male domination stemmed from the view of male superiority and has permeated our belief system for thousands of years. So here is a history of violence against women as a result of this thinking. And I am just talking about violence against women. We know there is violence against men, but this show is about women. The earliest known law codes from Mesopotamia circa 2400 BC state, if a woman speaks out of turn, then her teeth will be smashed by a brick. The Code of Hammurabi, 1800 BC, decreed that a wife must be submissive to her husband, and a man can punish any member of his household for any disobedience. Medieval canon law allowed a wife to be punished publicly, sometimes with iron muzzles or cold bridles with spikes, which depressed the tongue. This practice carried on into the formation of the American colonies. In Renaissance France, the laws limited the discipline of wives and children to physical abuse that did not result in death, but added the man who was not master of his wife is not worthy of being a man. 
According to the law of coverture, a long-standing legal practice that is part of our colonial heritage and is based in English law, coverture held that no female person has a legal identity, which meant married women had no rights to their bodies. That meant that not only would a husband have a claim to any wages generated by his wife's labor or to the fruits of her body, her children, but he also had an absolute right to sexual access. Within marriage, a wife's consent was implied. So under the law, all sex-related activity, including rape, was legitimate. A man wasn't allowed to beat his wife to death, but he could beat her. So in the late 1800s, some of the laws in the United States began to change. It became illegal in certain states for you to beat your wife. But really, before the 1970s, judges and police officers still saw wife beating as a trivial offense. Policemen would tell husbands to calm down and wives to stop annoying them, and cases rarely came to court. Popular culture depicted wife beating as a joke. To the moon, Alice! And psychiatrists saw it as a pathology of the underclass or of individual women. In 1962, New York domestic violence cases are transferred from criminal court to civil court where only civil procedures apply, which means the husband now faces penalties less severe than if he were found guilty in criminal court for assaulting a stranger. In 1966, beating as cruel and inhumane treatment becomes grounds for divorce in New York. But the plaintiff, a.k.a. the wife, must establish that a sufficient number of beatings have taken place. In 1967, the state of Maine opens one of the first shelters in the United States, finally. In 1992, the Surgeon General ranks abuse by husbands to be the leading cause of injuries to women ages 15 to 44. It wasn't until 1993, when I was 12 years old and just starting my period, that marital rape was a crime in all 50 states. And here we are today in 2020, where one in four women experience domestic violence in their lifetime. And one in five women in the United States has been raped in their lifetime. One in 15 children are exposed to intimate partner violence each year. Between 21 and 60% of victims of intimate partner violence lose their jobs due to reasons stemming from the abuse. One in three female murder victims are killed by intimate partners. 35% of all women killed by men are killed by intimate partners with guns. And the presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500%. 44% of mass shootings between 2008 and 2013 involve intimate partners. If you are experiencing domestic violence, please call 1-800-799-SAFE. Domestic violence victims often go to incredible lengths to hide the violence and abuse from other people, which is really counterintuitive to some degree, right? Um, like if you can get to school or you can get to work and be away from your abuser, why would you not scream to anyone listening like, hey, help me look at what I'm going through? But she says, and, and I'll take this kind of in, in my air quotes, um, she says, I think that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand about domestic violence. They ask the question, why don't you just leave? And there are a lot of reasons why somebody doesn't just leave. But one of the things that she points out is that it's often because of the abuse and the things that the person has made you believe, you maybe think it's your fault, right? So much of the manipulation and abuse is what we call gaslighting. Um, and this is basically psychological manipulation that makes you question your own sanity and reality, it makes you question, um, you know, you begin to doubt your own thoughts and memories. And so this can really play a big part in victims internalizing the abuse is their own fault. Um, 
or as a result of something that they did. So their abuser might say to them, you know, I don't want to do this, but you've made me do this to you because you did so on or so forth. Or, you know, I wouldn't feel this way if you hadn't first done whatever the case was. And so abusers are really effective at putting the blame on the victim and making their abusive behavior seem reactionary, even though, of course, that's not the case at all. And so this is why actually a lot of women will knowingly date or marry men that they know have histories of domestic violence, because these men are master manipulators who can explain away this situation as the victim's fault, right? And so we believe, well, as long as I don't do that, then he won't hurt me. Um, and so, you know, it's really why we see a lot of women who engage in victim blaming behaviors, because we have to almost create this false sense of security that we can do something to keep ourselves safe when in reality, we can't. And that is really, really terrifying. Um, and so I think it's, you know, I want to say for the record, on the record here, that anyone can be a victim of domestic violence. Victims do not bring the violence upon themselves. So if you have been in an abusive relationship and you have heard somebody say these things to you, um, you know, let us take a second to tell you that that there is nothing that you did that brought the violence on yourself. Um, violence in relationships happens when one person feels entitled to power and control and they use abuse to gain or maintain that control. And so no matter what an abuser has told you, um, please let us take the second to tell you this is not your fault. You don't deserve this. You do deserve to be treated with love and respect and kindness, and you deserve to feel safe in your relationships and in your home. So she also says, and I think that this is really powerful. It's like, well, you love this person. This is something that I think people often don't understand. How can you love someone who can do this to you? But remember, most of the time when someone's experiencing domestic violence, it's with someone they know and they love and often someone they live with. It might be your husband or your dad or your child. It's someone that you love often, someone who has treated you well, someone that you have happy memories with and happy experiences with. And the way that the pattern of abuse typically works is it's cyclical, right? So the cycle of abuse, there are periods of time where things may be calmer and even enjoyable, happy, um, but those times are followed then by a buildup of tension that peaks with some kind of explosive episode of abuse or violent behavior. Um, and often the abuser then you know, blames the victim for instigating that. And then the cycle repeats. So it's not like it's violent or, or awful all the time. Right. That there are actually sometimes, you know, a lot of a lot of happy moments within um, within the cycle of abuse. And so one of the most common things that we hear from domestic violence victims is that they want the abuse to end, but not the relationship. And it makes sense. Right. Because mm -hmm. this is somebody that you love. It's somebody that loves you. At least they tell you that they love you. Right. And they and they do often they do. Um, that doesn't mean that the abuse is okay. It doesn't mean that that you know you don't deserve to live in a in a safe in a safe home and in a safe relationship. Um, but I think it helps to sort of explain why people don't leave, right? Um, and I to me that's why it was really powerful to hear the thought process behind the placement of bruises because Ariel so courageously explained to us that this is someone you love and you have often a strong desire to shield them from the repercussions of what can happen. So it makes sense, makes perfect sense 
um, that victims would cover the bruises so that no one else knows what's happening. It seems very in line with women too, to want to weather the storm and feel like they can take that responsibility and they can take the hurt and their abuser may not be had the ability to, which is still a psychological game that they're playing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Ariel said, um, she said, I want to see her go from, you know, no bruises on her face, like being at work, acting completely normal, and then lying back and the shirt's removed and you see all of the bruises covering her body and you see everything that she's kind of hiding from everybody else. And I think that this is a really important thing to point out right now about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on domestic violence victims. Because for many victims, even if they were hiding it at work, right? So that's that's what Ariel's talking about here, that, you know, you go to work and you're hiding it. Even if, even if they were hiding it at work, work still gave them a reprieve and a break from their abuser. So it was literally a block of time where they were safe from violence, right? Um, but it also gave them access to a phone line or a computer that they knew that their abuser wasn't tracking. And so maybe they could use their lunch break to call their domestic violence advocate from their work phone, or they use the computers at work to look up information about safety planning. And so this lack of secure access to information and outreach is a really important piece of the discussion that I think is sometimes overlooked when we talk about the increased risk and rates of domestic violence and child abuse during the pandemic. And during the event, Layla from Futures Without Violence talked about some of the major challenges for domestic violence victims because of the pandemic. And she started off by talking about the importance of access to information. And what I thought was really, really important is that she included in the discussion access to accurate information about the virus. So remember, domestic violence is about power and control. So during a situation like this, abusers will use the virus as a means to gain or keep power and control. So maybe they threaten to expose you or your children to the virus as a way to cause you emotional and psychological harm, or they give you inaccurate information about it. Um, and so again, it's just another example to think about that domestic violence isn't always just physical abuse. It's about control and abusers will use the pandemic. They are using the pandemic as a means to do that. And so this is just one way that the pandemic is affecting domestic violence victims. Do you think that abusers are doing that in terms of saying, like, uh, keeping that person at home, like trying to keep that person from going out, even, you know, with a face mask? Do you think that it's it's more along the lines of that? I think it's all of it, honestly. Um, there's there's some of it that I think, you know, wanting to literally, you know, remove all interaction and keep that person completely isolated. Um, there's, you know, so it, going to the grocery store is an opportunity in the car to be able to make a phone call or to be able to, you know, so absolutely, I think, I think that can be a part of it. Um, you know, it, it's interesting you say that about the masks. There's something that I just recently read that I think is a really important, just kind of reminder for us when we talk, when we talk about how it is that we can be trauma informed and victim centered and really what does that look like? Um, and I, you know, I believe in in my heart of hearts that everybody can be trauma informed and victim centered. And basically what it means is to be kind to people that you don't actually know what people are going through. But there are there are a lot of domestic violence victims who um, if if there's any kind of history of strangulation or their abuser putting their hand over their mouth, um, you know, limiting their ability to breathe, things like that, wearing a mask can be very, very triggering for them. 
right? And so even though, you know, when you go to the store and you see somebody without a mask on, you know, where your brain goes is is one place. Just just again, kind of take that quick second to just think like we don't actually know what is going on in somebody else's world, right? Or or in their history and in their past. Um, and so, you know, just I, I think a simple example of the way that we can be kind and we can be trauma informed and victim centered, you know, in our everyday lives. So this is just one way that the pandemic is affecting domestic violence victims. And Layla gives an incredible overview of some of the ways that the pandemic has caused really unique challenges um, for domestic violence victims and the unintended consequences that fighting COVID has had on our systems and service providers who would otherwise be able to respond and support um, some of these DV calls. So here uh, we hear Layla talking about the impact specifically on law enforcement and calling the police for help. I know internationally in narratives that they called the police, they called the hotline uh, to get the help of the police. And the police said, we're so sorry, we can't even come to see you right now because of the COVID restrictions. Now, right now, most of the world, the, some of the quarantining and the lockdown is lifted. That doesn't mean the resources are still available, right? And um, then to go to the courts, for instance, in the U.S., if you want to get an injunction or a protective order, um, you have to have access to the court system. And if the court system is locked down as well, or they're only meeting, or if they're only providing services to certain type of um, uh, needs and requests, this is definitely not going to take a top billing again. It's not going to be a priority. So you, you have a limited access to information, to law enforcement, to the justice system, to healthcare. And finally, and this is the last one, is um, during when you're experiencing domestic violence, it's not as simple as always. It, I don't want to say it's a simple thing to get hit or physically abused, but domestic violence, domestic abuse isn't just about physical violence, right? It's about economic strangulation. It's about control. So when you have the, um, uh, the complexities of the problem of COVID um, and you have the economic hardships that may be in, inflicted on the families, um, the what you may have originally had potentially some resources to help you escape the home. Even if you couldn't go to a shelter, you could find a rental property or you could find a home person to stay with. Again, with the disease in place, with the, the fears of the transmission of the disease, um, homes of your friends may not be available. Shelters may be limited because of, again, resources, because their own staff can't even come into work. Um, so what you're left with is, do I have the money for a few nights to get away and go to a hotel? Do I have the money and resources to go find a place to, to rent, to take myself and my children out of this volatile environment, dangerous environment, and find safety and security? And if I've lost my job, I'm not going to be able to find funding. If my spouse or the person I'm living with is under incredible economic stress, again, for the same reason, um, that is going to be a trigger for me to even leave, want to leave, to have access to resources. So you see, all of this is, there's so many tiers build them on top of each other that normally are problematic to begin with. But when you have COVID um, and, and 
justifiably in the sense that we want to save lives, so we have to take these lockdown precautions. But there's a, a domino effect on everything else and all the resources that are there to supposed to help us. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply What's really important here is that question that Ariel mentioned, why don't they just leave? And under normal circumstances, there are so, so many reasons why victims don't leave and why it's so hard to leave. It takes an average of seven attempts to leave, um, but also why it's so dangerous to leave. Did you know that the time when a domestic violence victim is at the highest risk for lethal violence is when she leaves? And it makes sense, again, because it's about control. So this idea that if I can't have you, then no one else will. And so, you know, this, this question, it's, it's flippant, right? Why doesn't she just leave? Um, it doesn't take into account any of these dynamics or truly the safety um, of, you know, theoretically the, I've been saying, I've been saying she um, and women, and we know that that's not always the case. So I do wanna, you know, I, I should, should have clarified that earlier. Um, absolutely, men can be victims of domestic violence too. Um, but typically based on, on patterns and statistics, we see women, uh, women and their children as victims of domestic and family violence. So it's already incredibly difficult and dangerous and that's under normal conditions. And as Layla points out, there are so many aspects of the pandemic that add new challenges and really make some of the existing challenges even more difficult. And I think one of the critical things that she mentioned is the economic impact and the impact on shelter and where you can go if you if you can leave, if you do leave, where can you go? I mean, domestic violence shelters, especially back in, in March when everything shut down immediately, um, you know, shelters were in, incredibly affected by this. And, you know, you have to think too, you're, you're concerned about getting the virus. You wanna keep your family safe, that's why you're leaving. So. If you go into a place where there are, you know, a lot of people from, you know, outside your household, you're increasing your risk of exposure. And so, you know, where is it that you can go and how is it that the pandemic is affecting, you know, what that looks like if and if and when you can leave? I can't um, help but also think about what you just said about it usually takes seven times to leave somebody. So you've really isolated all of your other resources because you've now gone back seven times. So I keep thinking that you've probably burned a lot of bridges and really don't feel like you have any family left to go to or friends and now the shelters. Right. I just, that stayed with me and I wanted to make sure that. Yeah. Something else too that, you know, to, to Shay's point is that we all know 
uh, we have those friends um, that are in bad relationships and we help them. And once we help them once or twice, then we get like, hey, are you not getting the picture? And there's a way in a way we get fed up. Um, it's like the same thing that you might say to someone who has been using drugs is that you feel like you're enabling them when you keep saying, hey, it's OK, let's try this again. Um, but you want to you want to give tough love in a way and then and say, uh, you know, if you keep going back to this person, I can't support you. Um, so that is an isolating thing to do to someone. Right. Who is absolutely trying to survive absolutely. this. And, you know, honestly, what it does, this idea of, of tough love or that you're, you know, kind of taking a stance to say that you're not going to support them. Um, what it does is it confirms and, and feeds into the lies that the abuser is telling you that I'm the only one who loves you. I'm the only one who's here for you. And so what they're doing is they are, the abuser is, you know, over time, just kind of ticking away at, at the relationships and the connections that you have um, so that when you have the option or the possibility or, um, you know, when that time comes, if that time comes where you're tr you try to leave, um, where do you go? Right. And you're, you're the people that you have turned to before, like, okay, I'm going to help you. And, you know, are you just going to go back again? The best thing that, that you can do to support somebody who you love, who is in, a violent or unhealthy relationship is to support them always, even when they go back. Um, because you want to make sure that you are not one of those, you know, connection links that is is cut off. Um, and so, you know, this idea of tough love, it, it, it's not it's not helpful. It's not useful in situations like this. Um, so, you know, I think you're exactly right when you think about, OK, we're in the middle of this pandemic. And so where, where can you go? You know, there's one other aspect to this. Say you go to a friend's house, say you go to a family member's house. We are on lockdown. That abuser knows where your family lives. They know where your friends live. So all they have to do is get in their car and, you know, drive from one place to the next to try to find your car and figure out where you are. So, you know, the, again, kind of thinking about how this affects the ability to even be able to leave and, and to keep yourself and your loved ones safe. So one of the really critical things that she mentioned is the economic impact and the impact on shelter and where you can go if you do leave. Holly Height from the Downtown Women's Center in LA had some really insightful information about this. So let's cut to her and hear what she had to say. We've really seen this group embrace um, an understanding of trauma-informed care and that's really central to the work that we do with domestic violence survivors. So um, we know, as you said, Laura, that so many survivors of domestic violence have experienced some sort of trauma in their life. And we've done studies of the women that we serve, and we know that 90% of the women walking through our door on Skid Row have some experience of violence in their lifetime. It could be intimate part partner violence. It could be a childhood trauma. So having a trauma-informed care perspective really allows us to ask the question, what happened to you? What, what caused the situation you're in now? So it's not asking what's wrong with you, which is a very blame and shame-oriented perspective. It's more kind of shifting the narrative to say, 
what can we, how can we address some of the root challenges of the trauma that you've experienced? So I just want to share a story. We have a domestic violence um, rapid rehousing program. And I talked to one of our staff members early on in the pandemic. And I just said, you know, what are you hearing from the women that we serve who've experienced domestic violence? And she told me a story of a woman named Sheila, who um, she had fled her abuser um, with her children. And we, through our program, had found her stable housing. Um, but due to the pandemic, and so many people are saying this, that Sheila lost her job. And we're seeing that this pandemic is really a woman's pandemic. And the reason I say that is that the jobs and the industries that have been hit hardest are typically those that women work in. So retail, um, you know, house cleaning, hotel cleaning, like all of the all of the like jobs that women are employed in have been affected most. And Sheila was affected by this. Um, due to losing her job, her housing was in jeopardy. So she reunited with her abuser. Um, she got into a she she had to go back to him to be able to afford to house her children. And because of shelter in place, she was now back in a situation where she was living with her abuser. Um, one of the things this case manager said that I think Layla referred to earlier is that in this pandemic, it's just so hard to provide services for women who are living with an abuser because her, her abuser was like monitoring her phone. So when, when is a case manager supposed to call her and connect with her and check in with her when she's constantly under surveillance by the person that's abusing her? Um, so we've, we've thought of creative ways where, you know, we've encouraged women like Sheila to say, I need to step out for a doctor's appointment and she'll have like a 20 minute or a 30 minute phone call with her case manager. But those kind of things put the women who are living in a domestic violence situation in such danger. So um, that's really just been, I think Sheila's story just really hit me that, you know, and Layla really referred to this is that I hadn't really put the pieces together where women are actually reuniting with their abuser for financial reasons. And that was kind of, I think that's something we've seen more with the pandemic. So this aspect of housing is one that's obviously incredibly complex and it's connected to so many different things. One of the things that I think is usually overlooked is how policies and laws will have a disparate impact on victims. Um, so for example, Holly mentioned the eviction moratorium. I think one of the things that we're really keeping an eye on is that with the eviction moratorium, there's a lot of people who are in their their homes right now or their apartments, and they're not able to pay rent. But luckily, we have this moratorium that says, if you can't pay rent for during the pandemic, you don't get kicked out. But that's going to expire January 1st, 2021. So we're just expecting this huge wave of homelessness to hit in the new year. There's an obvious connection between domestic violence, homelessness, and poverty. And that's something that was really highlighted by Sandra Park from the ACLU during our event. So let's hear from Sandra now. Yes, well, I think we've heard a little bit about this already from Layla um, and Holly, 
but you know, fundamentally, we understand domestic violence as a pattern of conduct where an abuser is exerting power and control. Um, and it's important to understand that power and control in the larger societal and economic systems that we live in, um, where those factors um, also fuel violence and abuse. Uh, so when, for example, the National Network to End Domestic Violence surveys survivors about their greatest need, housing repeatedly comes to the top. Um, and part of the way to think about that is um, certainly domestic violence affects people of all economic classes, of all demographics, as we've already discussed. Uh, but poverty certainly makes survivors more vulnerable. They're more subject to coercion from abusers uh, who can use economic resources to wield power um, and to create more isolation and to cut off options from survivors. And I think we heard Holly actually talk about that in the context of the pandemic, where um, certainly more people are facing greater financial need. They've lost their jobs and they become much more vulnerable to um, ongoing abuse and to also a uh, returning to relationships that are abusive um, because they don't have other financial options. Um, the other way that I think about it, and that also comes up a lot in my work, is that the experience of abuse also opens you up to discrimination from different systems. Um, and one of the ways you can experience discrimination is in the housing context. Uh, when I first started at the ACLU 13 years ago, um, I was really looking to figure out, you know, where can the ACLU make the most impact on behalf of survivors? Um, and the kinds of scenarios I was hearing about again and again were situations where survivors were renting a home, paying their rent, you know, they were doing everything according to the rules, um, and then they experienced abuse in their home. And they may have called the police to seek help for that abuse. Uh, and when they reported it, and when the police you know, came to the home, their landlord became aware of the domestic violence in the home. And we were seeing many situations where landlords were taking lease provisions that generally said if a tenant experiences, or if a tenant has criminal activity in their home, they can be evicted, that they were using those lease provisions against domestic violence survivors and saying, okay, well, you've had criminal activity in your home. You call the police, they responded. Um, now that's a problem for you under your lease and we are going to file eviction against you. And I think that's really shocking to a lot of people because I think most people think in those situations we would want to give um, sympathy to survivors. Uh, but I think it's um, emblematic of a lot of discrimination that survivors experience in many different contexts beyond housing, uh, because people are deeply uncomfortable with violence and deeply uncomfortable with understanding how to extend help and support to survivors rather than punishing them. Um, so, you know, once we have these kinds of systems of punishing survivors for reporting, uh, what we've seen and what I've seen again and again over the years is that survivors learn to stay silent about the abuse. Um, and there's already a lot of social pressures that survivors experience to stay silent. Um, but when you know that you could also be evicted for reporting the violence, that's just another very clear message to so many survivors who want to keep their housing for themselves and their children that they need to stay quiet 
and that that in a, and also helps to unfortunately perpetuate the cycle because they no longer are in a position where they can seek assistance um, and seek help for that abuse. So one of the things that that Sandra points out here that I think is just brilliant and such an incredible way to sort of give, I don't know, an explanation, give an example, give some of that imagery to what we were talking about before with why it is that survivors would hide what's happening to them, right? And so with this I Am Not a Nuisance project, she talks about how the policies that are in place, the laws that are in place, how they have these unintended consequences on victims of domestic violence. And so instead of calling to get help, instead of, you know, using the police or using these these support sources that we have, um, they hide it because it could mean that they get evicted. It could mean that they lose their home, right? And so again, just sort of seeing the connection to why survivors often stay quiet and hide that abuse from others um, and what that cycle of abuse looks like. And, you know, that the the result of not doing that is can be devastating. Losing your home, right? All of a sudden becoming homeless because of this, because you are the victim. And this has happened to you. You call to get help. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in this situation. So, you know, this question of why is it that people don't leave? I mean, honestly, the fact that some people do it is incredible. It is honestly, it is incredible. Um, the, the courage and, you know, the fact that things lined up just the right way in order for that to happen. Um, so, you know, there's, again, thinking about this kind of on a continuum, there is no, there is no rule book for this. It's not like, okay, this happens. You realize that this is happening. You should feel this way. You should do this. And then, you know, you kind of move forward and, you know, that you're moving toward this end goal of leaving a relationship. Because as we talked about before, for a lot of domestic violence victims, that's not the end goal. That's not what they want. They want the abuse to stop, but not necessarily the relationship. Um, and so, you know, one of my favorite, one of my favorite lines is to say that healing is not linear, that there's no expectation here. And, you know, it, if you think about it, like cooked spaghetti, you know, it, it's all, it's all in the pot together and it's weaving in different ways. Um, that's what healing is like. And some days are better than others and, and that's okay. Um, so what I loved about kind of how she ends this, um, this part that we were able to hear from her is, you know, she talks about how the message that we have societally for survivors is for them to reach out for assistance. And I think, you know, she says, I think often people don't understand why survivors don't reach out. And this is just one reason that they might not. But we have to be working more holistically to understand that there are a lot of policies in place that people don't necessarily question that undermine survivors' ability to seek assistance and to determine the course of their lives. And I thought that was such a powerful, um, such a powerful thing to say and to remind us that, you know, again, kind of the expectations that we have for survivors and how they should how they should be acting and what they should be doing. The survivor is the expert of their own life and their own safety. And that is you know, what being victim centered is. It's trusting that it's not putting your expectations of what they should be doing or how they should be acting onto them and then not supporting them when they don't do what it is that you thought they should do, right? Laura, to your, to your comment earlier, they are the expert of their lives. They are the expert of their safety. And so to be victim-centered 
is to trust that victim and support them and give them help give them the support that they need. And I think another kind of call to action to your earlier point of being kind is also giving people attention. And in a time where we're so distracted to really look at someone um, when you see them, even if it's a stranger at a grocery store, and to maybe recognize their body language or the tone of their voice, not just the words that they're saying, and let them feel seen and loved. And sometimes that can be your gift to someone else. Um, Absolutely. I mean, so often people, you know, people say, well, it's not my place to intervene. It's not my place to do anything. This is, you know, their sort of personal, um, it's their personal business. And that absolutely is based in the historical roots of this, that, you know, this, this was kind of the, the public versus private sphere. And, you know, the fact that there weren't even laws until, you know, five seconds ago is, is just indicative that, you know, what happened in the home was that family's business. And so people didn't feel as though they should intervene, that they should, you know, quote, meddle in somebody else's business. And that is one of the most harmful things, I think, about our cultural consciousness, because it, it makes it so that that survivor is on their own, right? Um, and so there are a lot of things that we can do outside of this idea of true bystander intervention. So bystander intervention is, is kind of the term that we use to actually intervene and either help stop something from happening or stop something or prevent something from happening, right? And that's, I think, what people have in mind when they think about, like, how is it that you can help a domestic violence victim? So you're hearing, you know, somebody in the apartment next to you, you're hearing their fight. And so it's like, well, you know, it's not my place to go and, you know, knock on the door and, and tell him to stop yelling at her or whatever. But there are so, so, so many things that we can do to help support. So um, the research in, in bystander intervention breaks it down into three different things, three different ways. So direct, distract, and delegate. So direct would be directly intervening, literally going over and knocking on the door and saying, hey, sounds like there's a lot going on. You know, is there anything that you need? Is there anything that I can do? Truly just kind of addressing it and, and um, directly intervening in that moment. You can also just distract, interrupt the situation without directly confronting them. So, um, you know, have a pizza delivered. That's absolutely something that can, it, it distracts the, the situation from happening and gives that, you know, even if it's just a few minutes of, you know, getting your breath back down, giving that survivor the, the ability to be able to, you know, have, have a quick break, but also then, you know, Maybe that's the, the they're the person who answers the door or, you know, so so there's a lot of things that you can do without necessarily going in. And then, of course, you can always delegate. So um, getting help from another person in, in this case, it would be, for example, um, you know, calling the police and having the police come and do a well check. So there are tons of things that you can do in that very moment where that happens. Now, remember, that's pretty rare that anyone is going to be witness is you know, will witness what this looks like. Um, and have that option in that moment to be able to intervene in, you know, in in actual, uh, you know, explosive situation. But Shay, what I love about the example you gave is that there are lots of ways that we can support survivors, help them to feel seen, that have nothing to do with the moments in time where the actual violence is happening, right? Um, so, for example, 
in addition to educating yourself, which I think is is so important to learning about the history and questioning the things that you believe and you know the messages that we have and um, interrupting those messages and doing it early, right? I have an I have a 20 month old son and you absolutely can bet that we have conversations like this all the time. Um, you know, someone someone said to him the other day, um, I said, Lincoln, can I have a kiss? And he didn't want to give me a kiss. And she said, oh, give mommy a kiss. It'll make her sad if you don't. And she didn't mean anything bad by that, right? But what she's teaching him at 20 months old is that my feelings and my I can essentially use that and manipulate that in order to make it so that you do something and that, you know, my being sad is going to take priority over, you know, your boundaries and consent. I mean, these are really important messages. And so, you know, we have to teach our kids that healthy relationships don't include that kind of manipulation. Right. I mean, that yes. is that is that is critical. Um, so educating yourself. And, you know, kind of interrupting, interrupting these messages that we have societally, educating others. So sharing resources. This is something that I hear from my students all the time. They'll say, you know, I shared a video that we watched in class or an article that we read in class on my Facebook page. And three people have reached out to say, thank you for sharing. I felt really alone. I didn't think anybody else got it. As something as simple, you know, People who are listening to this podcast, share the link to this podcast on on your Twitter, on your Facebook and just say, you know, listen to this. It was really interesting. There's a lot of great information in here. That's all. You don't even have to say, you know, if you're if you're a, a victim, then I'm here for you. Like by sharing it, by showing others that this is something that you care about, you absolutely are being an ally. You're you're, you know, sending those messages to folks that they aren't alone. And that the you know the lies that their abuser has told them um, that there's no one else out there who gets it or who who will care about them, but that's not true. And those are that's a really really meaningful way that you can support someone again outside of kind of this superhero you know cape moment of like oh, I'm going to stop this from happening, right? Um, so you know, to me, this idea of education is a huge huge way that we can do this. Um, but there's also ways that we can intervene appropriately if we know what the flags are, sort of these red flags that we that we can look for. Um, and this is something that Arielle talked about in the very beginning as well. So one of the one of the issues with the pandemic and the way that it's affected um, you know, this idea of of bystander intervention is that children specifically have less access to coaches and doctors and people who aren't mandatory reporters. Um, and so, you know, we heard from we heard some really incredible examples of what that looks like and what that can look like, um, and again, in ways that 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 person doesn't have to directly respond or intervene in the moment, but they can remember delegate. So they're the three: direct, distract, and delegate. Um, and so, you know, Layla had mentioned the uh, some new research on X-rays and um, doctors who were seeing an increase in broken bones during during the last few months. Um, and so certainly it could be that we're seeing an increase in broken bones because kids are bored and so they're climbing on things at home and they're falling in and getting hurt. But 
absolutely those doctors, if they know that there are, you know, that they see this as a red flag, um, there are things that they can do to sort of intervene, get some, get some literature, get some support to that, um, to that person in ways that, you know, they have training in and are appropriate. So there's all kinds of things that we can do. Um, ultimately, you have to do what makes the most sense for you. Um, you have to do what keeps you safe and what you have the ability to do. But everyone should do something, right? Um, we have to change ourselves from within and then commit to doing what we can really to help create a better world, you know? So one of the things that I think uh, the event really inspired in me is this importance of paying attention to policies and laws. Pay attention to things like, you know, the eviction moratorium. And even though I'm not a renter and so, oh, it doesn't affect me, I don't, you know, I'm not gonna pay attention to that. Pay attention to that, right? Right, right to the people in your state who are making those decisions and, you know, talk about why it is that you support this and, you know, and so on and so forth. So to me, I think that's a really cool way that, you know, if, if that's what's comfortable for you is to pay attention to the policies and the laws, that's a great way um, that you can, that you can support getting engaged and getting involved in, you know, local organizations and national organizations is amazing support the people and the programs who are doing the direct service work. It is hard to do this work anytime, but in the middle of a pandemic, y'all, it is what I have been able to see here in the state of Kentucky with the way that, that these service agencies on a dime just flipped all of what they were doing and adjusted and made it so that survivors were still getting the services and the support that they needed. It, it literally brings me to tears when I think about it, that the work that they are doing is incredible. And they are dealing with the effects of the pandemic and the stress and all of this uh, on top of that. So support those groups, support the people who are doing this work, um, support the, the programs and the organizations that are on the ground because this is really, really critical work. And it's not, what everyone's doing, but we can all be victim-centered and trauma-informed and do our part, um, you know, to make the world a better place. And it may be something uh, like taking action. It could be volunteering at a local shelter or women's center, like the Downtown Women's Center in LA. It could be donating money because you don't have the time to uh, donate your services. Uh, and that could be by making a donation to the Domestic Violence Response Fund that uh, was started by Futures Without Violence. That could be getting behind an organization like Futures Without Violence or supporting the ACLU that actually does the legal work on behalf of the victims and works to change policy as well. I want to thank our expert guest, Dr. Emily Bonestell-Postal. Thank you so much for everything that you came and taught us and helping us break down our event that we had. I want to thank Futures Without Violence, the ACLU and the Downtown Women's Center. And this was Women of Tomorrow. Got a job, a flat, join the race. Never tell this woman she should know her place. Few years later, frames another degree. Filling up her seat, up getting vitamin D. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. 
part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.